Hi, welcome to Answering the Call, Conversations with Practitioners. I'm Sydney. And I'm Josh. Welcome back for episode two. We are joined by Captain Ray Ivey. Welcome, Ray, Thank to you. the podcast. Yeah, thanks Thank for you for having joining me. us. We're really excited to talk to you about your career and time at AM. And so if you're ready to go, we'll go ahead and jump into the questions. Absolutely. Okay. Well, Mr. Ivy, it's great to be interviewing a Texas AM former student. You are class of 81, if I'm correct. Correct. Um, can you kind of tell us about your time here in College Station and what did you do after you graduated? Well, I had a kind of a strange path to get here. Uh, I was the third to graduate from high school and the first to go to college in my family. And my entire youth was geared to go to the Naval Academy because I had been a U.S. Naval Sea Cadet. I'd been an ROTC and everything. So that's where I was headed. And then at the last minute, uh, that fell through. So I ended up coming here, which was the greatest thing that ever happened in my life. So, so it, was, uh, it was pretty interesting. But I'd only been down here once before, and I'm from the Dallas area. Uh, we'd come down for an ROTC uh, drill meet and things like that. So I liked it, but I didn't have any money, so I was supposed to go to the academy, and that didn't work. But uh, it turns out some old ags paid for my education. That's how I went through A&M was... Uh, the Commandant and some other people, I guess, uh, found a bunch of old ags that were willing to, to fund my education, so that's what happened. Nice. And uh, went through the Corps of Cadets, which was the whole reason for me going to college was I wanted to be in the military. I wanted to fly since I was a little kid, and uh, everybody told me fly Navy instead of fly Air Force, <laughs> and uh, I, it seemed more exciting anyway, so, so I came here. Uh, was in the Corps four years, loved it, uh, probably loved it too much my first two years because my grades uh, reflected that. <laughs> uh, but the last two years, uh, I was uh, in industrial distribution is what I did. And uh, my last two years, I did great. So I ended up getting directly commissioned out of A&M. And then within a month, I was in flight school. So it was basically packed up from here and uh, then went almost straight to Pensacola. Nice. So you had an extremely impressive career in the Navy as a naval aviator, uh, retiring as a captain with over 2,500 flight hours and 686 career landings. What did you love most about serving in the Navy? I think it's, uh, it's the camaraderie that you get. Uh, you, you see that throughout any of the military services. You saw it here at A&M, especially the Corps. Uh, it's a camaraderie. It, you, you're doing something big, big for the nation, bigger than yourself. Uh, you feel good about what you're doing. You, you know it's important. Uh, and then, as the, uh, the old commercials used to say, join the Navy and see the world. <laughs> and I definitely got to see that. I got to see all the Pacific and all the Atlantic and the Mediterranean and find out that no matter where you start, they both end up in the Persian Gulf. <laughs> and so you came in here and you were wearing your jacket. Can you tell us about what you were wearing and what that means to you? So it's a leather flight jacket. Uh, Navy's been wearing that, and now the Air Force too, but the Navy's been wearing them forever. You'll see H.W. Uh, Bush's uh, picture out here with the same jacket, basically, nice. that I'm wearing here. We... Uh, 
we wear those in our, it's part of our uniform, especially in our khakis. Uh, what's interesting is we don't wear those in the airplane. <laughs> we have uh, we have these green ones. I'll have those too. We have these green ones that are fire uh, fire retardant that we wear in the airplane if we wear anything in the airplane. But most of the time you don't because you you get all this other bulky stuff on, so you're not wearing jackets. And we actually have heat and air conditioning in the airplanes now. Oh, nice. So, <laughs> but the jackets are nice. Uh, they look good. They you know they're they're pretty warm and uh, it's something that you treasure for the rest of your life. And so you also flew F-14s, is that correct? I, get, I was lucky. I got to fly everything. If it flew off the carrier in the 80s and 90s, everything except the A-7, uh, I was able to fly it. I flew primarily the S-3 Viking. That was my airplane, and that's what I commanded squadrons in. But I found out very early in my life that if you ask, most people say yes. So I used to just ask and say, hey, I'd like to fly, uh, I've never flown an F-18, I'd like to go fly an F-18. So in Jacksonville, they had the training squadron for F-18, so I jumped in the back of an F-18 and flew an F-18 and got to do that a little bit. And then when I was a CO, we were trading airplanes. So the commanding officers of the air wing, I'd say, hey, uh, you guys need to fly the S3 a little bit and see all the equipment we have and things like that. And they say, yeah, and you got to fly with us. And it, it got to be kind of fun because I flew with one of the F-14 squadrons and had fun with that. And then the other guys came and said, well, you haven't flown with us yet. So I said, okay, I'll fly with you. And then when we went on cruise, I got to fly uh, some more with them on, on deployment. And then my last, I, and I flew with other squadrons too. But my last uh, at-sea time in the Navy, I was the operations officer of a battle group. That's the carrier and all the ships. So uh, it was the admiral, the chief of staff, I was the opso. So the admiral was a, a ship guy, but he's in charge of the battle group. So I was the senior aviator. And he said, part of your job is to go fly with the squadrons and make sure they're doing the right thing. I said, yes, sir, I can do that. So I flew with all the squadrons. So it was, it was great. And then I got uh, a little time in, uh, when I was in some of the training squadrons, I went and I was assigned to go teach the Air Force how to shoot ships, basically. Like B-52s carry harpoon missiles that go after ships, so I went and trained them how to do it, so I flew B-52s. Uh, B-1s were supposed to try to do it, but turns out they can't really go after ships. But I still got to go play with them. <laughs> and F-15Es, and then uh, and then a bunch of other stuff, uh, some of the uh, Marine Corps stuff too. The, uh, I didn't get to fly the Harrier, but I, I taught them how to do stuff. And then uh, at the very end of my career, I was working for Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison uh, as her military fellow, and I was helping out the Texas Air National Guard and the, uh, the general came in, and we were talking, he said, why don't you come fly with us? I said, yes, sir. You really mean that? And he said, yes. So I went down to San Antonio and flew F-16s. Awesome. So I had a wonderful career and got to fly a bunch of different things, and even some of the big, big air wings, like, uh, like AWACS and things like that. So some really odd airplanes, but it was fun. So before we go on to talking about your private sector career, I have one question. Original Top Gun or the 2022 remake? 
Oh, the remake is by far. The original one, I knew a lot of people in it, uh, a lot of people that flew it. In fact, the three main people that flew the airplanes and, and the real Top Gun, they all ended up being admirals. Uh, so I knew most of those guys, and I knew there was an Aggie that uh, is in a couple of uh, places in Top Gun 1. Uh, you can see him in the background, especially in the volleyball uh, <laughs> sequence. He's there clapping and stuff. So we give him a lot. He was in my outfit. So we give him a lot of uh, grief on that. <laughs> and uh, in fact, I saw him after the second Top Gun. I said, hey, you didn't make it in the second Top Gun. He goes, yeah, we couldn't negotiate a good contract. <laughs> but the first one was entertaining. Uh, but as an aviator, you're sitting there going, that's, you know, that's not real. That's not the way people act, except for Goose. Goose was at 100 uh, percent. Everybody I talked to, they liked, they liked the actor. Uh, the character was exactly like, if you want to see what a naval aviator was like in the 80s, look at Goose. Uh, the way he joked around, the way he did the stuff, he was 100 percent. Uh, different than Top Gun 2 Maverick, uh, I was really impressed. Uh, I don't know, I only know one guy that was actually flying it, but uh, they did a great job. Um, Tom Cruise, uh, I guess he really wanted to put his heart and soul into it, and the Navy got involved and said, let's do it right, and they did a fantastic job. All the flying is, is correct. Uh, even I look for the little details in movies like this, and even when he got back in the F-14, uh, the way he, he did the start sequence and the way he did things, it was like, hey, that's correct. They, they actually did that correct. So I was pretty impressed. I've watched it like three times now. <laughs> I took all my interns from, uh, from the Bush School uh, last summer to it, so that we had a good time with it. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, so uh, like we mentioned, after you left the military, you worked extensively in the private sector. Can you give us a little insight on um, how that switchover was for you? It actually wasn't too bad. Uh, when I retired, I retired from the Navy. I wanted to come back to Texas. Through Senator Hutchison's office, when I worked there, I met a lot of uh, industries and companies and stuff like that. And I saw this one small business at the time that had a very good technology that was game changer and it just happened to be near where i grew up uh, so i went back and we went to rockwall texas and it was called concept and at the time they had just they just sold to l3 so i went to l3 concept and i worked on what turned out to be a big air force contract uh, or networking sensors and that was really important to me because my flying career we had all these different sensors in my airplane and all the other airplanes and the ships but they didn't talk to each other very well and they didn't contribute to each other so what this company did is they networked all that so uh, your radar and my radar talked to each other and your uh, signals intelligence system talked to mine and it combined everything, and obviously, just like teamwork, now you got a, a very good, robust picture. And uh, to this day, it's it's one of the primary uh, capabilities in not just the Air Force, but now the Navy, the Army, 
the UK uses it, everybody is using it, and it's it's been phenomenal. And I went into that, and it, like most DOD contractors, there's a lot of military in it. So you kind of roll in, and uh, it's it's almost like home week, uh, old home week some ways. Uh, the camaraderie is still there. Even the ones that weren't in the military, they're so close to it. Uh, it it's pretty easy to form a team. So it wasn't wasn't too bad to make that transition. And so now you're also leading the Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service, and you're at their evaluation of first responder, homeland defense, and public safety technologies. What kind of work are you doing there, and why is it so critical? So uh, after 18 years in, in contracting and working different uh, places there, I looked around, I wanted to come uh, back to Texas because I was living in D.C. and the family, all we all wanted to get back to Texas. And my goal was to come back here and just teach. Uh, so I started teaching with the Corps, met Danny Davis, Dr. Davis, and we were talking and he said, hey, you ought to look at some of the stuff Teeks is doing. And, and then I saw this thing about uh, where they're doing innovation uh, and testing evaluation. I go, I could probably help on that. I've done a lot of that when I was at Bell Laboratories and things. So I went and talked to them, and uh, it turns out what we do is pretty interesting in that we look at products, either ones that are pretty mature and already out in the out there for the DOD or, or for the intel agencies, and we see if those can be used in the, with first responders for fire, police, homeland security. And we test those to see in a operational environment using professionals. And that's something I saw as a huge gap in DOD and the Intel agencies. Uh, all the contractors develop this great technology and they test it in the lab, but then it's hard to test it in an operational environment with professionals. We call it the valley of death. And what happens is you get up uh, and you test something and it works really well, and then you hit that valley of death. And it either doesn't get funded because you can't prove it, or the military or the intel agencies buy it, and then it might work and it might not when it gets out in the real world. Well, what we're doing here and what Bush Combat Development Center is doing, that's important also, is that we're taking it, and because of the incredible facilities we have in the A&M system, we're able to put it out in the operational settings uh, and see if it's going to work as advertised, see if it's operationally ready. And then we bring in professionals, professional firefighters, military, DOD, whatever, and we, we try to break it, we try to work with it and see if it's operational. And in many cases, we go back to the manufacturer and say, you know what, it didn't really work well in this aspect, maybe you should work on that. Or, hey, this is great, let's, let's push that forward. The, uh, the other thing I'm finding out of how important that is, and I didn't even realize this, is in the DOD and Intel world, you're selling to the Department of the Navy, or you're selling to CIA or DIA or whatever. That's not the case in Homeland Security. You're having to sell to every little uh, department, you know, Dallas Fire Department, Houston Fire Department, the police departments. And 
And those departments don't have the capability to test what they're buying. So these vendors go out and say, hey, this robot's great. You need this. And it looks pretty cool. And, you know, I think, okay, we'll buy that. And then they get it and it sits in the corner because it's not operationalized. So the other piece of the importance of what we're doing is now we have city and state government and, and Department of Homeland Security coming to us saying, would you please test this and make sure that it's, it's ready for prime time? So we're doing a lot of that. We're testing things and saying, this is how it operates. This is performance. We don't endorse it. We're not saying it's good or bad. This is what we tested and this is how it performed. And I think that's very valuable because it saves money and time and we're providing the expertise that they need. So I, I enjoy it. Yeah, so you're really like bridging the gap then between public and private sectors. Yes. I wonder if I could ask you, uh, sort of talking more into like current events and on the same vein with the public-private sector collaboration, when we've seen how commercial businesses have played such an important role in competition so far, like, you know, Starlink satellites, um, they've been a linchpin of what we've been seeing in Ukraine, can you kind of expand on what role you see the private sector playing in competition in the future? Well, the government can't operate without private contractors. The one thing uh, I've talked to uh, Vogel and Olson and everybody else around here, and, and Kathy Worry knows about it too, the intel agencies and the government in general can't operate without contractor support. So everybody sees on TV and in the news and stuff like that, you see the, the operators and, and what we call the blue badges, right? Those are the government people. Well, that's one third. Two thirds of the workforce at any one of the three letter agencies is contractor. So in my last position, uh, we ran all the communications for most of the agencies. So these were contractors running, you know, key operational uh, communications for not, not just in the U.S., but everywhere globally. And uh, it's a very important job, and they can't do it without the contractors. A lot, of, a lot of the contractors came from those agencies, so they know the agencies, uh, and, and it's a linchpin to go back and forth. And unlike... Uh, what I think you hear a lot of times in the news or in movies and stuff like that, it really is a team. If you're working at Langley, if you're working at down in Springfield at NGA, or if you're working uh, up in Maryland at NSA or any of these places, you're all together. I mean, you're working on one team, one mission. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're a blue badge government, government guy or a green badge contractor. Uh, it becomes one team, and the mission becomes first. It really does. Uh, the, even the executives at most of the companies I worked at, I was a senior executive at uh, CACI. I had all of the communications for all the agencies. Uh, you're embedded in that. It's, it's, you're competing with the other contractors to win the contract, but once you've won the contract, you're part of the team. You're, you're in there with everybody else, and it doesn't matter what needs to be done. It doesn't matter 24-7 or whatever. You realize how important that mission is. If, if agents can't 
you know, uh, communicate with back home where they need to or between each other, that's critical. That's, you know, life-threatening. So you, you do what you have to. And when we're building gadgets, you know, the real cue is, is the contractors. So when you watch 007, you see Q. Really, the contractors are building the stuff. The, uh, the government guys are funding the stuff. So you'll work together on, on what's needed and what the design is, but it's the contractors building that stuff. And we have to make sure it works. So it goes back and forth. It, it's, a, it's a team all along the ways, both in the operational piece and buying equipment, buying... Uh, buying services and everything. It, it truly is uh, a pretty good uh, teamwork and it doesn't matter who the contractor is. Even in many cases, you'll have people that are working uh, even in the operation setting for the agencies. If that company loses a contract, the company goes bye-bye, but those people stay there and they basically just work for the new contractor because they're so embedded in the mission that they don't want to change. And I don't think they, I don't think most people realize that. Yeah. So speaking of enhancing collaboration, you're a member of FBI's InfraGuard and uh, the Department of Homeland Security's uh, CISA Alert Team, uh, which are both dedicated to uh, public and private sector collaboration to protect the U.S. United States critical infrastructure. And we're seeing that more adversaries are attacking the United States. Um, what does the United States need to do to mitigate this damage by our adversaries? Oh, it, if people would just do update their patches, that would help a lot. You, you don't realize how bad that is. But uh, a lot of our critical infrastructure is using old equipment and, and old networking equipment and things like that. And it's so easy. Uh, even my job in the Navy, it was so easy to get inside of a network and, and do things, right? So uh, in my day, I used to, you know, want to go blow things up, right? But now you don't have to blow up the, the factory or the power plant. All you have to do is get in on a cyber front and do something. Uh, I think too many people look at cyber as the applications and the data, the ones and the zeros. And that's cyber. But how do you get to that? People forget about the networks, the hardware that gets you in. And all as, as we become more and more wireless, which everything is, that's just making everybody's job easier for the bad guys, right? Uh, it's easier to get into a system wirelessly than try to break in through fiber or something like that. So everybody's got to understand that this is warfare. It, it, it is truly a part of warfare. And it doesn't just mean it's the military either. Uh, it's affecting us now, every day, at any time, our banking system could be corrupted or go down. Uh, we've seen it on our electrical and power grids and things like that. We know that uh, there's other countries that are inside our networks, and if they wanted to shut down power plants, they could do it. If they wanted to uh, disrupt Wall Street, and they have and they can do it. Uh, so you have to stay on top of it. And it has to be a public-private type thing. They know that we have a gap between public and private. Uh, 
And a lot of our privacy issues are in that middle gap. And we want to protect our privacy issues, but we're, be, we're protecting our privacy issues from our government, but we're not protecting ourselves from the other governments. Uh, it's an, China has an incredible amount of information about everyone here. That's why you're hearing about the TikTok thing and things like that. I guarantee if you have TikTok on your phone, the Chinese have everything on your phone. At any time they want to, to listen in on what you're talking about, they can listen in. Anytime they want to see what you're doing, they can turn your camera on without you knowing the camera's on. That's what's happening right now. All that is out there. We need to try to shut some of that down, try to prevent that. And a lot of it's education, you know, because most, most Americans, we, you know, we're kind of naive about it. We just go about our life and we don't understand what's happening to us. And with the uh, advent of AI, it's changed everything. In, in my old days, the Russians used to collect all this information. Uh, and when the Soviet Union fell, we found warehouses full of all this information and data on all, all kinds of people. Almost everybody that was a major or above or a lieutenant commander above in the military, they had information on, on us. But they had warehouses full of stuff that they never got to look at, right? Because they, we overwhelmed them. It was just too much. That's not the case now. Because they are collecting all this information. And, they're, and we're giving it to them, right? We, we sign up for things and say, oh, yeah, you can have this and go ahead and do this. Uh, you can have my DNA from 23andMe or whatever. But with AI, they're able to sort through all this information and use it against us. And we were just talking about this in my class yesterday here at Bush. It's, you may not realize what, what they can do, but they can influence you. Yeah. I think we have all experienced talking to a bunch of people or whatever, and you pick up your phone and you, you have an ad that just happens to be about what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. That's not a coincidence, okay? That's not a coincidence. Uh, and that may not be the Chinese. That's our great, you know, uh, contractors out there and our, you know, our marketing people trying to get stuff. But if they can do that, they can do that anywhere. And they are doing that. They can, they can now design an ad for you individually and you separately and you and you and you. So now they're targeting each individual person and you don't realize how much influence that has. Well, speaking of China, I want to get your reaction to the spy balloon that NORAD shot down mm -hmm. a couple of days ago. And we've been seeing a lot of things in the news about all these objects flying over our homeland. And I'm pretty sure the last time we had to shoot something down was back in World War II. So what's your reaction to all of this? Why do you think China deployed the balloon? What does this mean for us? So uh, NORAD had never shot down anything from the beginning of NORAD which goes back in the 50s. The balloon was the first thing that was a NORAD shoot down. Uh, it's been going on for a while. Uh, there are weather balloons that just kind of go. This was not a weather balloon. It was an intelligence balloon. Uh, yes, there are satellites that can see things, but we know when the satellites are there, so we know how to protect things against satellites. It's a little game that both of us play. 
the good thing about a balloon is it's at high altitude and they kept it simple. Our radar systems are designed to be high fidelity and, and if you think about it like a resistor, we, uh, we put threshold limits on it and we say, well, in order not to see all this junk out there, uh, we're gonna tone it down a little bit here and, and basically anything going less than 50 miles an hour, we really don't care about. That's not a threat, right? Anything over you know, 60,000 feet, we don't care about that because it, it really can't do much. Well, somebody in China said, you know what, we could do a balloon and it's slow and it's low, so you could collect more because it's slower. You can collect more because it's lower and we can just let it go. And, you know, from what I'm hearing, it had some kind of steering mechanism on it, things like that. So, you know, shame on us, good on them. It's pretty smart intelligence. They, they collected a, a ton of stuff. Uh, there's no doubt it was being shipped straight back to China. Well, we know that. It was shipped straight back to China. And was it the first one? Probably not. But I, I, think, I think something that blatant is, is very, you know, that's kind of recent that they would be that blatant. Uh, and it shows that they don't respect us. Shows that they, they, they're pretty sure they can get away with it. And with no repercussions, and I guess I guess they're right, because we're not really doing anything. Uh, as far as the other stuff that's out there, that stuff there's always stuff out there. Uh, these small little objects and stuff like that. Uh, there's balloons. There's all kinds of junk out there. Are they UFOs? Absolutely, they're unidentified. Okay, are they alien? I don't know. <laughs> I. You know, in all my flying time, I don't think I saw anything that was alien. Uh, my wife will insist that she's seen some when we're on a cruise ship, and <laughs> things like that. And I said, well, you've had too many martinis or something. <laughs> but uh, I think now we've, now because of what happened with the Chinese, uh, we have taken the threshold down on our radars and, and other sensors that are out there. So we're gonna see more, right? You're automatically gonna see more. Are they a threat? Probably not. Uh, or, you know, they're gonna continue, and the, and the Chinese will continue if they can get away with it. Now that we caught them doing that, they'll do something else. So I actually wanted to circle back to the information security and the infrastructure security. Do you think that the legislation that was passed recently by Congress and the president will help with those gaps? Or do you think that they're diverting funds away from fixing these critical mistakes that could help our infrastructure and the security of Americans? You talk about the infrastructure bill? Yeah. With pieces of it that have cyber in it and things like that? Yeah, and then also the recent decision by... Texas A&M to get rid of TikTok on all university devices. And I know there's a bill in Congress trying to move ownership towards more American-based um, companies. So the TikTok thing is way long overdue. Uh, and what you're gonna see is A&M's coming out with some more stuff too to make even more restrictions. We, we tend to react afterwards, you know, to things, but 
uh, yes, uh, taking TikTok off the networks is a great idea. There's other applications that should go away as well. Uh, it's just like uh, you probably heard of Huawei, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's only so many companies that build equipment for cellular technology. Uh, you, we invented it, right? Bell Laboratories invented it. Uh, and now Nokia is, is a big player and there's other big players and then Huawei is, the, is a massive player. The Chinese, uh, just like in the DJI drones, which is the most prevalent drone out there, the Chinese are putting phone homes in everything they build. And that's what's happening is DJI drones, Huawei, all these little devices that, uh, that they're doing, all these Internet of Thing devices, uh, the Chinese are putting a little phone home, you know, and it just goes over the net, Internet. And they're not sure what they need, but they have its data, right? It, it may be maybe j just data for marketing, but they're stealing it, you know. Our marketing people, we, we have to ask, you know, if our marketing people want to get something, they have to ask your permission to collect it. Well, the Chinese are just collecting it. Uh, that can be used for military purposes, or it may be used for uh, stealing uh, intellectual property, uh, which it definitely is, or it may be used for marketing. But it's long overdue. Will it help if they do it the right way, if they put in some things in place? Uh, we're, just, we're just very naive when it comes to protecting ourselves. So in your opinion, who's winning the cyber race, China or the U.S.? They are winning the cyber race as far as collection. Have you noticed all the things that the U.S. gets caught doing in the cyber world? Probably not, right? That's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing. So uh, we... The U.S. has been doing cyber longer than anybody else, right? We, we invented most of it. So we're very good at it. We're very good at it. But we're also, we tie our own hands in it too, right? So we follow the rules for the most part. Uh, there's always some, you know, Snowdens and things like that. There's always some that are, get out of line, but we are very good at it. We were falling behind terribly. Uh, I think we're uh, about eight years ago, ten years ago, when we brought back and put cyber as a, as a high priority and things like that and started funding it. That's helped a lot. So I think we're, we're doing pretty good. But the Chinese, uh, they don't have any of the restrictions we have. I mean, we have to, uh, we can't collect on our own people, obviously. We don't want that. Uh, and then even collecting on other people uh, around the world is something that we're very careful about, who we can and who we can't. Uh, the Chinese will use American servers to collect against us. Well, we're not allowed to go into our own servers. If it's a server some in, an, in another country like China or Russia, then we might be able to get into that. But we're not allowed to get into our own servers, but they are. So they're using our laws against us, and we need to be very careful. It's not that we don't want to protect our laws. We just need to, we need to play the same rules. Of, uh, if, they're, if they've got a rule to lock us out of something, we should be locking them out. 
It shouldn't be that that uh, we're restricting ourselves, but we're not restricting them. They should have to play the same rules, and we should enforce that. I want to transition to asking you about what drove you to public service, what motivates you to give back, because you're heavily involved here at Texas A&M. You are a guest lecturer here. You also are an instructor for the Corps of Cadets. Why, why have you chosen a life of public service? Uh, I call this my get back tour, right? <laughs> so my first 23 years was, you know, my passion. That was the military and flying and all that. That was my passion. My next 18 in industry was trying to, to do things to help my passion, to, to try to improve the military and, and the agencies and stuff like that, that, that helped me. And now, you know, I'm, I'm kind of in my, I'm, I'm lousy at retirement, obviously. My wife tells me that all the time. <laughs> I just, I'm a complete failure in retirement. So this is my give back tour. This is where I, I've gained all this information, all this, all this uh, great experience. And as I said in the very beginning, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Texas A&M and the Commandant at the time finding a way for me to get, you know, to be able to pay for an education. So I feel like I, you know, I, I should be giving back. And I think I am. I'm trying to use my experience and my knowledge to give back. And I want my kids too. I want my kids to, to see that, to see that, you know, service to your country, to your school, you know, it's an important thing. Besides, it make, it feels good, you know? I gotta tell you, every time, every time I teach over at the core, you know, I'll go in there and I go, oh, okay, I've only got, over there, it's not a three-hour class. It's only a one-hour class or 50 minutes. I always run over. But I have so much I want to tell them, right? But when I, I come out of those classes, I'm pumped up. I am pumped. I feel great. I feel like, wow, I've done something. And, and all these people, you know, you watch the news and you get depressed about what's going on. And then you come here at the Bush School and you teach, and you go to the core and you teach and go, wow, we may have a chance. <laughs> you know, these kids are gonna have to fix all the things that we screwed up. Uh, it's a big job, but I, I see that we do have the talent, we do have the passion, at least here, and I understand this is a bubble, okay? Texas is a bubble, A&M's a bubble, Bush School and the core, those are all smaller and smaller bubbles of people. But at least we have a group of young future leaders that want to do something and make a difference. And uh, it makes me feel good. It's like, okay, we got all these problems, but you know, we got some people that can try to solve them. So that's why I do it. It's, it's fun. Besides, I, I can't just sit around. <laughs> I did that for like three months and ran out of honeydews and said, uh, okay, I got to go do something. So. <laughs> All right, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up. But before we do, do you have any words of advice for Bush School students as we prepare for our careers in public service? Uh, we have another hour. <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. So one thing uh, I always advise is, and I mentioned this earlier, ask. Ask a question. You know, it's, it's amazing what you can do if you ask a question. 
and say, can I do that? Most people say yes, especially if it's face-to-face. -face. It's hard to say no, right? The other thing is go find what you want to go do and do it. Don't, don't wait for somebody to knock on your door. Uh, the reason I got to fly all those airplanes, the reason I had, I had an incredible uh, series of jobs in the Navy that most people don't get, it's not because I waited until they said, I want you to go here next. I went out and said, I want to do that. I want to be on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I want to work in Congress. I want to do this. And that's how you get good jobs. You go find them and you go do it. Um, just, just explore. Don't, don't take no for an answer and don't sit back and wait. And uh, you can have some fun doing it. And stay, stay true to your, uh, your values and be, uh, be trustworthy. That's, that's everything, especially in the business you are going in. Trust is absolute the foundation. If you, if you don't have the trust, then uh, you shouldn't go in this business. Well, sir, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time to meet with us, and we're excited to push this episode out so that everyone can listen to it. My pleasure. Anytime, and uh, happy to talk to any, any of the students and see if I can help them. Thank you.